welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Um, yeah, it's another nice and sunny day in in, in, in the UK. Uh, I'm feeling good. I, I don't really have any, like, there's no amusing anecdotes I have or, um, you know, stories to tell. I think today is a nice day and we haven't had them that often. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host Phoebe Roy, who I think is also, it must also be a nice day where you are. It is, it is a nice day, but um, it's also like, I don't know if you have. I don't know if you have this in beyond the beyond the tunnel where <laughs> yeah, beyond, <laughs> beyond, the, beyond the tunnel beyond the wall. But yeah. um, I've got a really really bad um, version of the Chelsea cough at the minute because I keep inhaling plane tree pollen and ah and mm. it, I'm not I'm not I am not a fan. No, in South London we just inhale fumes and we like mm-hmm, it that way. Yeah. Sure. Uh, we we inhale fumes and we inhale garbage and we like it that way. If you don't like it, there's the door. Go to like I don't know Germany or something. Um, we're joined by we're, this week. We are joined by a very cool guest, uh, Emma Burquist, who is the author of Devils Unto Dust and Missing Presumed Dead. Uh, she's also calling in from Texas. Uh, oh, that, that's right. That, <laughs> yeah. How how how's how's everything in Texas? I hear based on the news that I read that things are fine and good. Things are great. Things are great. Uh, you know, wonderful day. Everything's going very normally. Um, mm. It's, you know, 10 a.m. and it's uh, 80 degrees, which is what, like 27 <laughs> for y'all, uh-huh. I guess. Yeah, a bit hot. Yeah, yeah, so yeah it's that, gonna, that's pretty gonna warm. Keep, gonna keep climbing and yeah, we're uh, doing great. Wonderful, relaxing summer. Yeah. And uh, what's great is that wherever you are in the world, uh, someone's going to ask you to go do a podcast. So we are all really <laughs> in just like one liminal space. Um, right. no, well, yeah, we are. We, we're actually doing like a show this week about like a different form of content. We are talking. We're going to be talking about true crime. Um, yes. uh, and uh, you wrote a very interesting piece for Gorka like quite recently mm-hmm. about it's called True Crime is Rotting Our Brains. And like, yeah, we've got some really good stuff in there. I would recommend people to read it. And crucially, it is in the show notes. But before we begin, uh, so Emma, this is your first time on here. Uh, we usually talk about a post or like a kind of like, you know, so this is something that's sort of made us laugh or like amuse a little bit. Um, but this week we have something that we couldn't necessarily avoid and we are going to expand on it next week um, with a very special guest who's like been kind of covering this. Uh, we have to return back to the Wagatha Christie trial. So <laughs> listeners who have been with us for a while will know that when the when the origins of the Wagatha Christie thing happened, uh, the sort of like social media spat between Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy, in which like Colleen Rooney kind of set a very clever trap for Rebecca Vardy to like prove that she had been selling stories about her to the newspaper. Um, so like, yeah, somewhere in the archives, we sort of talked about that. Since then, it's gone to court uh, and Rebecca Vardy has taken Colleen Rooney to court for like defamation or like... Uh, something to do with just like um, reputation damage and stuff like that. And it hasn't really gone well for Rebecca Vardy as far as I know, but I haven't. So I've been sort of like dipping in and out of the case uh, based on like basically Jim's tweets, uh, which have been given, which have been kind of like gathering like a lot of uh, attention. Um, But from what I've been told and from what I understand, uh, it might be the first time that this many posts have been read out in a courtroom. Um, Phoebe, have you been like paying more attention to this? And like, can you like uh, get me up to like what what has been happening? And if you have been paying attention, like what what have been like your sort of like highlight moments or things that are just worth noting 
Oh, as an update. Great question. Um, first of all, Emma, do you have any questions for us about who these people are? Do you need? Oh like, yes, yeah. That do you too. need like a potted yeah. history of the bodies and <laughs> the rooms? I've caught up a little bit, so I'm sort of tangentially aware of of like what's going on in the yeah. you know the wives and girlfriends kind of thing, and yeah. and so I'm I'm sensing that this is sort of um a real housewives kind of situation, yeah, but in yeah, court. Ki- yeah, kind of. Um. But if we can, if we can also think of some some other uh, some other celebrity framing, um, Vardy and rather the the Vardys, Rebecca and Jamie, have sort of been cast as like the heels in this mm. situation, and uh, Colleen and Wayne Rooney have been have been cast as the whatever the opposite is of a is of a heel. I don't know wrestling, um, and if and if you do, don't at me to explain wrestling <laughs> don't do that i it's it, it's your hobby that's fine but i i don't care um but it's really okay it's really really important to have a kind of uh be aware of the kind of the oral history of these of these couples because uh wayne rooney was a kind of was the kind of great white hope of english football but a very very long time ago he was he was a, he was a he was a brilliant, brilliant player. When he was, when, this was when he was, he was 18, 18, 19. That was when, that was when he had his first, I think he was 18 when he had his first England cap. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I don't okay. know. Okay. I, I think, yeah, like around that sort of age, he was super, super young and he is, and you don't really have this in, um, in American sports, but we have this interesting figure in sports in the UK, which is someone who is technically a professional athlete. And I'd say technically is a professional athlete and a and a brilliant one as well, uh, but for whatever reason, the the diet and the exercise that they are on doesn't take physically, and they look like they smoke sixty a day and are on the pints, and that's and that's Rooney, <laughs> and absolutely fair play to him. Like you know, he's he's living his he's living his truth. His wife, whose name is Colleen Rooney, is a sort of is a sort of semi-British institution of her own right. She has like she has like she or she used to anyway. She has like columns in like in gossip magazines, um, mm. and she's sort of known for being kind of a sort of nice kind of down to earth lass, mm. um, or certainly like she certainly was. I'm not sure if she sort of still still is like they've been they've been together since they were since they were at school so they're kind of childhood sweethearts and she's very much someone who kind of very much backed the right horse in Mm. getting together with this bloke when she was when she was Mm. sort of 14 or so now the Vardys are a slightly different proposition Jamie Vardy also very very good footballer also also England footballer but is known for being engaging in undignified behaviors shall we say my favorite Vardy story is that he he had a he had a bad hamstring injury um and he said in public that and because it, it wasn't healing and no one understood why it wasn't healing and then it was found out that one of the things that he liked to do was drink this thing called a called a skittles vodka and that is when you oh, no. empty a bag of Skittles into a bottle of vodka. And, and Skittles are like brightly colored 
fruit flavored yeah. sweets. No, that, that's, yeah. not, that's not a real thing. That's yeah. That's you, <laughs> you, you put a bag of Skittles in a bottle of vodka, and then it turns into this like aggressively sweet red thing. And that's like his, and that was Jamie Vardy's favorite drink. And this is why his injury was not healing. <laughs> because he was too busy having like fucking alcoholic panda pops. Because he was like, because he was like flooding his body with so much shit that it was like, it was just doing everything it could just to protect itself from the Skittles vodka. Again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if this is the precise reason. <laughs> But it was definitely taking much longer to heal and it was blamed on the Skittles vodka. And his wife, Rebecca Vardy, as we find as we will find out, is um is just she's just a really, really fascinating reality TV character, really. She's just she's just she's mm. a absolute poisonous snake. And but something that I've that I've clocked a little bit over the last couple of days and we're not going to go into too much of this because we'll be talking about this in the full episode next week but I've seen people saying that uh, people are being sexist about Rebecca Vardy by calling her a snake and saying that she's a and saying that she's a bitch and saying that she's horrible etc so what I'm going to suggest is that we only use terms about Rebecca Vardy that are normally used insultingly about men so so Rebecca <laughs> Vardy she's a toe rag she's a nasty little thug <laughs> Um, she's an oaf, etc. So that's mm. so that's how I'm going to deflect any accusations of of sexism yeah. there. So yeah, so that's what so that's what you need to know. And as Hussein said, uh, these two had a big falling out because Vardy was, um, as is being demonstrated during this trial, was feeding information about Colleen Rooney to the press, um, and it has been determined through her having her WhatsApps with her agent read out. Um, that amongst other things, she is very, very keen on making money in general from yeah. the misery of her husband's teammates, her friends. It's a whole thing that she's got going on, like mm. apparently kind of in league with her agent who threw her phone in the North Sea. Oh, yeah. That was my fuck. favorite part. It was like, oh no, it That's fell it. in the ocean. Yeah. So we don't have the messages. <laughs> yeah. So now, so uh, yeah, so now, um, so yeah, so now we're actually against women having side hustles. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just hearing, you know, boss bitch behavior. So <laughs> I love. Yeah, there is, there is actually like nothing more, but there is nothing more girl boss than like throwing your phone into the ocean. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's like, there are like various, so actually num number one, that was a very good spotted history because I, number one, I did not know about the Skittles vodka. I think that's going to haunt me for like <laughs> a while now um like it is the it is like one of the most deranged things i've That's heard so upsetting uh, and i and i went and i went to like one of those british unis like british universities where like they have the weird fish bowls and stuff and just like the kind of weird sugary drinks i don't think i've seen anything as sort of like twisted as that um or like heard of anything twisted as that but like yeah the second point um phoebe as you sort of alluded to and we will be talking about like in more detail next week there is a lot of like sort of posters uh, there's a lot of like posting references in this. So, um, you know, in, in during, during, during the court case, uh, like there are like references to, uh, Rebecca Vardy's WhatsApps, but there's also like references, like one of, one of the funniest aspects is like the courts not really understanding how Instagram really works. So there is like this long dialogue 
between Rebecca Vardy and like the um the barrister about like what a finster is or like <laughs> what a kind of like what what a sort of like fake Instagram account like or second secondary Instagram account is what like your close friend circles are um and you could just like you can just tell that like the barrister is like very confused about like what like these weren't in the preparation notes and then the second part which I thought would be very relevant to our audience is that like one of the things that has come up a lot in across the court case is Rebecca Vardy's um, use of the cry laugh emoji, <laughs> but also how the barristers don't know the difference between the cry laugh emoji and other crying emojis. So I'm going to read this out. This is like from Jim's like feed. Um, <clears throat> Rooney's lawyer, David Sherbourne po- reads out a WhatsApp sent by Vardy saying, quote, poor Colleen, followed by quote, laughing emojis. Vardy disputes his characterization. I don't know whether they're laughing emojis. Sherbourne replies somewhat dismissively. Okay. Crying with laughter. But then the emoji that's used is not the crying laugh is it's the normal crying emoji. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like, so when this came out, obviously a lot of people sent it to me. Because uh, we've done, we did the episode with Hugh like a while ago on the on the cry laugh emoji. But there are just like lots of these really small instances. Um, and had I put them all in, we would have we would just be reading Jim's like live 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 feed. Um, but yeah, like it's 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 just it's it's a very kind of bizarre situation. And one of the questions that I have had since looking at this is i mean i guess it's like the nature of like the spectacle Mm -hmm. and i think as we mentioned before we started recording like one of the interesting things about this case is that it's like very it feels very low stakes Mm. um but i kind of i i i do sort of because it has kind of gathered a lot of attention but attention from like a certain section of like british media twister i guess and i I don't know like phoebe maybe maybe have some thoughts on this because i'm thinking about it in relation or like just as as it's happening in conjunction with like the amber heard johnny depp trial where even though the stakes are obviously a lot higher and the the matter is like much more serious um the voyeuristic component of that is also much more pronounced and much more embedded into like the broader content economy um yeah i guess like and this and this is sort of like where i've been trying to think about this Mm. so uh, yeah i mean i, I don't know maybe maybe may, may, maybe as like a question and also because um emma you probably like are much more or you've, you've probably much more plugged into like the uh the mm. heard and um the the uh, yeah the amber heard and johnny depp trial mm-hmm. uh where like i guess i'm just i'm just very interested in like how you sort of conceive of like of the voyeuristic elements of um of like both of these like is is this just is this just a case of like as you're sort of like like is this just a case of like you have like an entertaining story and like people are sort of like plugged into it or is this kind of part of a broader trend of like these like both very serious matters sort of becoming content and like the participants in it like having to kind of be much more engaged with content i i mean like i don't think like the trial <laughs> hasn't been to me particularly like interest like it's not this isn't like you said like a real high stakes case like this isn't you know like a murder trial or something like that this is you know a a defamation trial and so many people have been watching it and I think part of it is um sort of the he said she said and then part of it you know they're celebrities like so it's obviously going to you know garner a lot of attention um in the same way that like uh I guess like the OJ trial you know I, I remember my teacher in like elementary school putting the trial on during class so we could see the verdict, even though, you know, we were all kind of too young to, to really understand. <laughs> I, re- I remember thinking like, oh, he's not guilty. He must not have done it because again, I was a child. Yeah. Um, but there, yeah, I think when it's like a celebrity on the stand or when 
someone has like a, there's a very strange devoted Johnny Depp fan base, which mm. I, if you didn't realize existed, which to, yeah, to me is a surprise, but it shouldn't yeah, be because we literally recorded an episode about fandoms last week, and <laughs> the and the and the breadth of capacity for people to be literally insane about yeah, about somebody whose films they like is yeah, and they like astonishing you know, to me. Will find every tweet about it online and talk about how Amber Heard's a liar and a bitch and like. The thing for me is that like the trial is not about like, you know, whether or not she's lying. Like, I think they already found that like he did abuse her like in, you know, he already tried to sue her for this before. It's it's so it's like, yeah, maybe she abused him, too. There are often cases where people abuse one another, but he is suing her for saying, honestly, like he hurt me. And that's a pretty scary thing to me like regardless of whether or not she also hurt him like mm. that you can take someone to court for talking about the abuse they suffered in a relationship i think it sets a really scary precedent and i don't yeah. think um his fans are just uh not willing to entertain that at all it's it's no there's always got to be one one bad guy one good yeah. guy and that's just not how these things work mm. do you think there's like something to like the tele like so the herd the herd trial is like televised right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and there's like I, there's been a couple of like reports that i found kind of interesting and really scary about um or like on specific youtube channels how they've kind of like directly pivoted from like one form of content to just covering the trial and making viral clips of it like yeah um i, I think someone yeah i think someone at business insider people are watching it like it's just mm. it's been pretty yeah. crazy someone someone at business insider like noted that there was like this kind of this this somewhat like popular but very small channel that kind of just dealt with like mechanical engineering problems and then all of a sudden like it just changed to becoming like making viral content about the trial mm. Right. Um, which is like insane to me. It was like it's not. It doesn't even make any sense except for like, okay, you kind of know like what works and like what to gauge number, like how to gauge numbers. And the thing about like the Rooney trial, the rule, the Rooney Vardy trial is that like, obviously that's not the case because like cameras aren't allowed in the court. So like the entertaining content that you get is really like Jim's feed and like whoever else is kind of covering it in real time. But like Jim's feed is interesting because like even on that kind of very small level of like reporting within kind of like very restricted and confined reporting conditions, you're still getting this like huge amount of attention um, to the point where like, this is, you know, the trial kind of becomes something else and it becomes like participatory entertainment to one Mm -hmm. degree, but it also becomes something that can be like reappropriated and remixed at will. So it can like, the risk is that it can just sort of become so much. And the reason why I think the herd trial is like a good example of that is because like i think with so much of like the viral herd content i've seen on like tiktok and everything like it a lot of it isn't really even about the trial it's sort of like about external like external things and in a lot of cases it's like these kind of well the depth fandom sort of feeling that they are victimized by like society right Mm -hmm. so and like this is and this is like you know the trial is kind of like a microcosm of like these broader grievances Yeah, they feel very <laughs> attacked right now. It's like, how dare, how dare anyone, you know, say anything bad mm. about this person that I like? And it, it's, it's weird. It's like you don't know this person. You do not know Johnny Depp. Like he is not your friend. But they are, yeah, willing yeah. to attack other people for just having an opinion about this. Mm. It's yeah. Mm. It's all, it's all fandoms, baby. Mm-hmm. It, uh, 
Yeah, well, we'll, I, be, we'll I, be I talking. Yeah, I personally find it insane that it's possible to film and televise a trial. This feels to me like a really yeah. bad thing. I, do, I, just, I just can't imagine what the kind of public interest reason for it is. Other, yeah. other than to spectacularize. It's, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's to well, get yeah. used to advertise. I, I mean, you know, it's hard mm. to. Well, yeah, the, the, the kind of thing, and I remember like a decade ago or so, or like, I remember even being in school and like, you know, the school debating team, God forbid. And like, one of the things was like, oh, you know, we should have, you know, uh, one of the motions was like, we should like televise like court debates. And I thought it was a good idea at the time. Uh, on the basis that, like, number one, I was like a stupid teenage boy. Um, but my thing was like, oh, you know, we did. I'd also read Orwell for the first time, so it was just like, <laughs> yeah, we all we need like absolute free speech, and like, you know, um, it's a great thing for democracy if everyone can sort of see what's happening in a courtroom, and like, you know, uh, it gets rid of like the elitism. And I guess like the argument kind of made sense back then, but I think now, I think especially at a time when like, you know, every week on the show we just sort of talk about how like when things are rendered and mediated into content, like mm -hmm. it, it, it goes out of control really fast and crucially, like it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really serve any sort of democratic purpose because once it gets rendered, it becomes something else. And like the way you understand digital media, like the calculus, like changes as a result of it. So I guess like the arguments that like these people advance are still the same, like, oh, this is good for democracy. But really what it comes down to is that like, Oh, what this does is create more content and that content like while it, you know because ultimately as you mentioned um in both these cases these are like you know stories about like rich people's kind of like fighting mm -hmm. with each other right and like you know uh it, it, you know if, if you're talking about it in like democratic terms it's like well there's you know a huge backlog of like domestic abuse cases that just haven't sort of seen the light of day mm -hmm. or like are still sort of being processed or you know defamation cases that are like in the same way or like people can't afford in the uk anyway like to like to hold a defamation trial is really really expensive um but you know so they sort of use that argument for democracy but ultimately like what it comes down to is like oh the effectiveness of this is that you can just generate more and more content mm -hmm. yeah so absolutely. Mm. Uh, I don't know if we have anything to say or whether we can use that to segue into the main, into the main bit. I mean, this is um, an access, like court, like court posting is an access of true crime. I think that people think that mm. people don't think of it in those, in that respect, because when you hear true crime, you think you like automatically think about very, very popular shows, which are mm. picking with a certain amount of um, unseemly glee over the horrible, usually sexualized murders of young women. Um, and that's that's definitely what I think of when I think of true crime or um or or you know, stuff about kind of serial killers or or, or what have you. But this is this mm. is still true this is still true crime. And mm. it's still very indicative of this of this atmosphere where people feel like monitoring and reacting and producing further content based mm. on their monitoring is a way of shoring up their own protection and i think a lot of i think a lot of the uh the consumption of particularly kind of murder-based true crime is is about the uh understandable but quite silly idea that if you can arm yourself with enough information and if you can participate in enough kind of mutual social surveillance, you will prevent this sort of thing happening to you. 
And obviously, you know, if you get caught by Colleen Rooney, you get caught by Colleen Rooney. No one can save you. That's just that's just the way, <laughs> that's just that's just the way things go. Yeah, cre- credit to her. She like it was a very smart thing. True Detective and, season five. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. I so I think so. I think that I think that people forget that there is a kind of whole axis of kind of of uh, crime voyeurism, which is like nothing to do with murder, and um, definitely the Johnny Depp Amber Heard, Amber Heard trial is is. Is something of is something very much in that kind of adjacent genre, I'd say. Definitely, there's there's, I think part it's all part of this sort of parasocial relationship that you have mm. with um, these cases where you you feel involved in them, and I think that's part of the problem with uh, a lot of the true crime stuff is people feel involved in these cases and they feel this sort of ownership mm. of them or this relationship to the victims or perpetrators, and so they get very heavily involved in it. And that's, I think what we're seeing with these, with these court cases. And it's like these, you know, these are real people. They don't know you. Mm-hmm. Your take on it is not needed. This is mm-hmm. not something that you're involved mm-hmm. in, but people feel because it's, you know, coming directly to them on their phone or because they can comment on it. They feel like they're part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's like a good way to sort of get into um, your piece, Emma, because like, mm-hmm. I don't so so admittedly I don't really listen to a lot of like true crime stuff. I can't remember the last one that I did, uh, or I, I did sort of get invested in. But I do know people who are like super super invested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I think a lot of the stuff that you wrote about in terms of like the effects for like listening and like kind of embodying the world that these like shows tend to present, like I you know I can see that very evidently with them. But as I was thinking about it more, I was just I was also thinking to myself, oh like you know this. I, I think to a degree, everyone who sort of spends like an extremely like or like even quite a long time engaging with some form of content probably kind like relate to this somehow. So mm-hmm. before we sort of get into like the specifics, what I've kind of like taken out from the notes uh, for people who haven't read the piece uh, and the piece is called True Crime is Rusting Your Brain. What like led you to write it um, and what were you kind of arguing in that piece? Well, it started it. it I started writing it. Um during the Gabby Petito case, which I don't know if y'all are familiar with, um, mm-hmm. but it was like a really big case here in America. Um, and I was just seeing a lot of very weird trends around it. Um, and I, I, I think what weirded me out so much was that it wasn't a complicated case. Like there were all these people who were like trying to be internet sleuths about this particular case, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a mystery. Like it was very clear what happened mm-hmm. like she went on a trip with her fiance and he came back and she didn't like it was there wasn't really a mystery to be solved it was clear mm-hmm. that he killed her the question was just sort of where her body was and like what mm-hmm. specifically happened which would have you know been a job for the police or the detectives on the case but it was this weird thing where it wasn't so much twitter as it was tiktok um where people decided that they were going to really comb through her social media and look at her posts and look at the stories she posted and and all these and and looking at her fiance stuff and like trying to find some sort of like clue or some sort of like red flag that she should have seen and I think I think I I had like a very (laughs) angry sort of breaking point where they were like oh he liked fight club or he read the book annihilation so he clearly had like 
he was interested in violence and was like, I love the book Annihilation. Like (laughs) just things that did not make sense. And there was this idea, I think, that they were part of this case that they were helping when really they were just kind of muddying the waters. And there was this idea, it felt to me like if, if she had you know, been more aware of these things, or if she had been a follower of true crime, like maybe she would still be alive. And that seemed to me to be like a very sort of dangerous way of looking at something. Mm. Like, mm. like if you were only, you know, smart enough or like vigilant enough or knew all the signs to look for that you could avoid this kind of danger. Mm. Um, yeah. And sort of the more I looked into that, the more I saw it. Um, and so I just want, I wanted to write about that because it, it just seemed like it was getting a little out of control. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> um, just wanted to pick, yeah, just pick the, up a thread yeah, of um, what we we're talking about, about TikTok, particularly because so much of um, the her depth trial is being played out on TikTok. And this is just, mm-hmm. it's just a really, really, it's just a really side point, but I just think it's worth thinking about. And it's that there is basically no possibility for you to manage your own TikTok feed. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is something that I'd noticed a little bit ago. And then I had it confirmed uh, confirmed for me because someone was saying about, like, as, like, as an abuse survivor, they really do not want to see these TikToks, like making fun of either of them, really. Um, mm. And... So they tried to work out how to mute topics or mute particular hashtags and you basically can't do it. There's mm-hmm. like, there's no, there's no user, there's no kind of user interface like there is, like there are with other, um, with other posting platforms where you can to a really like significant degree manage your, like manage your feed and manage what you see. Um, mm-hmm. and TikTok is just like, I know you said that you like want to see this stuff, but uh, do you want to see it? Yeah, do you want to do, do you want to see it? it? Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. Here it is. And it also seems to be the case that, and I know that this is something that is definitely a, like a problem for me as well, is that if I know something is going to upset me, I cannot stop myself from clicking on it. Like I, that's not something mm. I have the capacity to do. I will see it, and I'll and I'll think, no, 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 no. This is going to do you so much, so much psychic and emotional damage. <laughs> To click on it, yeah. uh, you're not going to sleep for like two days if you click on this. Uh, so I'm going to need you to go ahead and click on it, and yeah. then and then because it's an algorithm and not like a little guy in your phone being like, oh, no, 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 don't show her any more of that. Don't show her any more of that. She just was doing it to upset herself. Um, the the algorithm says, oh, well, that's the kind of content you're clearly watching. So do you want to see more some of more of it? Do you want to see some more <laughs> yeah. of it? So like in yeah. terms of like the kind of the, like the astroturfing aspect, and also I think with the um with the potato case, I think it was um it had this like interesting and very, I think, dishonest, or certainly kind of people being dishonest with themselves, kind of partner of it being like like a social good, like a kind of crowdsourced mm-hmm. social good. Yeah, and there the were, it was you, very much like we're helping. Yeah, and the more <laughs> like, you involved yourself and the more of it you watched, the more of it you were getting shown and the more you were getting kind of dragged in. And that's at least in part, I think, down to TikTok's specific and quite unusual user interface if you like look at how basically every other social media platform works. And 
And I think that it's it's interesting because because part of it is I know that this is definitely the case that uh, particularly with kind of high profile high profile murders or kidnappings, um, particularly of particularly of young women and particularly of young white women um, or particularly of kind of young white girls that the that detectives would have to would have to kind of sift through people calling up and saying I've seen them either because they think they're helping or because they want the attention or for you know for whatever for whatever reason and this was kind of really kind of this is a thing that really hampered particularly finding missing finding high profile missing persons Mm-hmm. So part of me wonders if this is just the same thing, but just at scale. But I think that these companies and these tech companies uh, manipulate this instinct and manipulate this kind of observable social phenomenon and amplify it beyond all like possible capacity and all possible reason. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think the the hashtag had, you know, millions of views, yeah. like they people, you know, and if, if you were looking for it, you would be presented with it. Mm. Yeah, there's also like the kind of, you know, the classic sort of fallacy of demand as well. And I think, again, TikTok, the TikTok example is very good because like I've had examples where there are certain content that I know that either I'm not interested in or crucially like this will just kind of upset me and kind of disorientate me. So I am not going to watch it. So I'll just kind of like click on the tab being like, I'm not interested in this. Um, But like what I'll often find is that like, it doesn't take that long when you sort of go onto TikTok or YouTube and stuff where you'll sort of get similar content being thrown at you. Um, Like the idea of just like being able to sift through that stuff because it's one category. I don't think that really exists. And I think in the case of like the herd and depth trial, for example, but I think this also applies to true crime too. Um, you know, because like there is because there is this sort of perception that there is a demand for this kind of content, and that like there is kind of co- like you know people always sort of want to do it. Um, all that it's, it's a very easy way to kind of like get people to watch and listen to your stuff. Um, it will kind of keep on being generated, and it will keep on being generated in ways that aren't you know necessary. Like there are ways that are designed to like sort of circumvent like tag sifting. Mm. And I wondered whether like in the course of you researching and writing this piece, whether this kind of like played a role into it. And I I don't know, I guess like the question I'm really asking is like, um, do you remember like when the sort of true crime boom sort of started and like how has it sort of ended up in this situation where we have so many true crime podcasts and content, like a lot of it not particularly good, um, but like stuff that kind of clogs our feeds all the time and like, you know, because I, I imagine that must contribute to how people like conceive of true crime, but also like the ways in which it affects how people like move through the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so true crime used to be sort of more tabloid, sort of sensational. Um, it would almost I would say like kind of trashy. Um, and the it wasn't really until well, I mean, there were always books. I think that were sort of the the higher end of it, um, you know, sort of starting with like Truman Capote and, and, but those were always sort of research done by journalists, um, uh, pieces like that. But, but the way that we think of true crime, like, you know, the shows on TV or, you know, just reading about quick cases, it was, yeah, it was like more tabloid fodder. And it really wasn't until I want to say like 2015 when Serial and The Jinx both came out, that there was sort of this, I think, kind of rebrand of like 
prestige true crime um, because it's they had very high end you know production values and it was like oh well look if I mean if NPR is doing a true crime piece that's obviously going to be sort of like a classy look at it um, and you know so you know obviously serial was very interesting and they did a good job um, but because that and the Jinx were both so popular you had a lot of copycats and then you had the start of like mm. other podcasts and those are not necessarily well researched the way that like serial was or the way mm. you know the books were it, it's a lot of times it's just people taking information from wikipedia and kind of rehashing it and they don't really have anything yeah. new to say about these cases um it's just sort of repackaging it in a more sort of friendly format um and a way for people to kind of chat about these horrific crimes mm. and a way mm. of making them sort of more accessible yeah yeah there was a case recently where like a true crime podcast came out and it like basically ripped off like a guy's like some guy's like entire like I think he wrote it for the Atlantic mm-hmm. but that guy wasn't like contacted or like you know some like this production company or like this kind of like the person who created it just like took the article and like recreated it in audio form and then like uploaded it right right there's I mean there's no like who's in charge of making sure that the facts are correct like it's just mm. it's a podcast like who's gonna use fact checking that you know it's I can tell you, nobody, baby. <laughs> right, right. You can't get this information from anywhere. And so people who are listening aren't necessarily getting the whole story. They're getting the story filtered through whoever is telling it. Like there's a narrative forced onto it that, you know, there's always going to be sort of um, someone's shaping of it. Mm. One thing I was really interested in in your piece was also so you as you mentioned um like true crime stuff used to sort of be like the territory for like tabloid magazines Mm -hmm. i guess in the us but like you know in the uk as well and um the whole like true crime format at least in like what i remember the whole true crime format was supposed to be a way of like looking at these stories in like a less sensationalized and more nuanced Mm -hmm. form i think that's kind of like what serial did and like what a few of kind of like the early true crime stories did, or like they were kind of uncovered trying to sort of like re like opening up kind of cases where there was sort of a very clear um even miscarriage of justice or mm-hmm. uh like it just wasn't sort of like carried out properly and like there was still like question marks and everything and i think that those are like amiable goals and then as the expansion of true crime has happened as you mentioned like you know the uh these types of intent the intentionality kind of reduces because like in a lot of these cases they're just sort of producing content that they know works and i saw i, I wanted to ask like what you think or how you think these podcasts um, operate in relation to the tabloids because I, I think also one thing I remember vaguely remember seeing a few years ago was um, a tabloid newspaper or a tabloid magazine that had kind of like covered a true crime case like a decade or so ago mm-hmm. then kind of going back because this podcast had come out and it got a lot of good marketing and then opening up their own sort of archives so they were kind of feeding off the podcast and then the podcast was like feeding off the tabloids and it kind of created this sort of weird loop um, in which it almost felt like they were working in relation to each other or like reacting to what each other sort of said. So it, it sort of felt like it was kind of like media reacting to media, if that makes sense. And I wondered like whether you, wh- whether you kind of saw this as like, yeah, I, I guess like h- how do these types of true crime shows and podcasts and stuff like, you know, what is their relationship to tabloids uh, and like, you know, the tabloid kind of covering of it? I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that they are sort of playing off one another um, because you'll get these 
very well done pieces, um, you know, like pieces for the Atlantic and, and, and things like that. And I mean, you know, going back to, I mean, James Baldwin wrote about the, the Atlanta child murders. Um, there, there are always going to be these like very sort of high end, well-researched pieces, but they don't make good sound bites, you know? And so what people really want is something they can sort of pick up and browse like the way you would a tabloid in line at the supermarket. And that's really what the podcasts focus on. It's like just sort of like very sort of condensed stories, not all of the facts or just like the very most, like the very basic facts. Um, and so I think what happens is you get sort of a two tiered system where you have some that are well done, some that are well researched, and then you get sort of investigation discovery kind of stuff, mm. which is like all day, you know, crime shows. Um, and it, it, I think people can't necessarily differentiate between the two because mm. there's so many more of the sort of broad unresearched type that it's hard to seek out the more well done ones. Mm. Mm. Do you have, um, do you have in the States, uh, like cheap, pulpy magazines, which are aimed at women and are just like full of this kind of stuff, but they're also full of like mm. experience stories. And then, and then just like people sending in pictures of like their grandkids doing something funny or like here is my dog and it's like a really weird kind of mixture of stuff we do have a few i don't think we have as many as they do in the uk and like i when i was getting sort of requests i got a lot from like australian magazines so i think that they have a lot there as well Mm. um Mm. we don't have as many we have more like National Enquirer stuff, which is like, I gave birth to an alien's baby, that mm, kind of yeah. thing. Um, but that, I mean, that also does contain some of that more sort of sensational true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, one thing I wanted to, so like one of the arguments you kind of um, mentioned, I think it's like, quite convincing, uh, is about like how these, how like the abundance of these shows, I guess, kind of mm-hmm. project like a worldview or like a kind of way of, people like relating to the world uh, in terms of like fear. So Mm -hmm. I think you sort of like recall an anecdote of like a friend of yours who either, or like someone that you knew who either um, mentioned that like these true crime shows are basically like fermenting a culture of fear and then getting yelled at online about it. (laughs) Um, I think that was the case. Or was it the case where like you knew someone who like was, uh, but you know, the the quote I've sort of taken out is, one second yeah okay i was bouncing in three and two and one uh yeah the quote the quote that you the quote that i've sort of taken out which i think embodies this uh, i'll read it out so all these things and this is, is in relation to the um the kind of like features of true crime love true true crime shows uh all these things constantly looking behind you carrying a safety device always being hyper aware these aren't normal ways to live it's not healthy and it's certainly not sustainable and yet i see women proclaiming that this is necessary that this is the way that you need to move through the world as a woman i see women choosing to live this way uh the, to live this uh, i see women choosing to live the way i'm fighting to overcome mm-hmm. 
there's a like, few others where you kind of mentioned this, but I thought this, that was like a good way of like kind of looking at it. Um, I wondered whether you could expand on that like some more. Like, is it the case for like the abundance of these true crime shows like creates or informs this culture of fear or like does it sort of build on to something that already exists? Um, and like, how does that kind of affect the way that people kind of like view themselves as like, you know, participants in a society, but I guess like also politically as well. Like what, like, do you feel like there are any kind of like political effects to, um, the kind of like contagion that these types of shows, uh, seem to be, uh, projecting? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I, I noticed it because, you know, I was struggling with PTSD and kind of trying to get over that and then seeing people sort of treat hypervigilance as a normal reaction to the sort of everyday world. Yeah. I said, well, that's not a reaction to the everyday world. Um, that's, you know, that's a, a symptom of like, you know, a mental <laughs> illness. Um, I, I think people, the prevalence of true crime, it doesn't necessarily make you overestimate um, the amount of crime in your area, but it makes you more aware of it and it makes you more afraid of it. So I think I was looking at a study and it found that they, um, I think people slightly overestimated the amount of crime in their area, but then their fear of crime went up exponentially the more they listened mm. to true crime. Um, and I just, I think that that's not, that's not a healthy way to live. Um, and I, And I think, you know, especially during sort of the pandemic where there was this uh, real sort of fear of, you know, other people not taking the right precautions. And there was just a lot of mistrust. And I think mm. in America, especially there's this distrust kind of baked into our culture because we don't have a lot of social safety nets. You know, the message for us is that sort of always been like, yeah, you know, good luck. You're on your own, which is kind of the end result of this sort of very intense, uh, strain of like you know individualism that we have mm. um so mm. it's like you can't rely on anyone you have to rely on yourself um don't trust your neighbors don't trust anyone and i think it was you know it was really hard to see that especially during the pandemic that people were not interested in you know helping one another or or taking these like small precautions to protect their neighbors or the elderly mm. or the young and there's just been sort of i think increasingly this breakdown of like social bonds and community and the idea that, you know, we are living in a society and we are responsible mm. for one another. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, because part, part of that paranoia as well is, is fed by something that you see like coming up again and again and again, not necessarily on the material itself, but in like amongst the kind of the fandoms who kind of grow up around uh, true crime content and sort of treat the fandom like a kind of mass, uh, kind of mass kind of crowdsourcing and kind of safety tips um, right. and one of the things that one of the biggest fears that seems to be kind of that seems to kind of come through it uh, is the fear of your essential good nature being used against you by a violent mm -hmm. criminal so it's right. if you see someone on the ground don't go near them they're gonna <laughs> yeah, pull a knife on you them. don't yeah. help them and yeah like not, it could be a trick yeah. yeah like not like not that long ago my uh, my mum uh took a nasty fall just like in the like, absolutely like in the middle of in the middle of london and no one went near her no one said are you okay no one helped her up um people kind of glanced but I'm I am absolutely convinced that part of it is this uh, is this atmosphere 
of people thinking, well, no, 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 because it's a, it, it's a trick. And it's very, and I think it's very, um, certainly as you say in the article, it's very, um, it's very antithetical to living in a, living in a healthy community and certainly in the kind of community mm-hmm. that I want to live in. And I think it's also, it's, it, it feels very misplaced as, as a methodology because because we're, we're talking we're talking mainly about we're talking mainly about women and mainly about mainly about young women like this is like we don't need to necessarily like kind of skirt around that there are obviously lots of people who are um who you know who have reason to be afraid of particularly of violence in in public but but it's mainly women that mm-hmm. seem to think that by consuming enough of the content then they can kind of then they can sort of build some kind of armor against it and Mm. because it because it is is misplaced because as people keep saying you're probably more likely to be at risk of a violent crime at the hands of a stranger if you're a young man Mm -hmm. um for example and the people that who are really who are really pose a danger to you as a young woman are the people that you already know, or the people in your life, the people that you date, the members of your family, members of religious organisations, people at work, etc. And I think it, I think to me, it feels like a kind of hype, a kind of hyper tuned up version of people being very, very afraid of flying, but not really being afraid of driving. And driving right. is far yeah. more dangerous. You're far more likely to buy it if you every time you get in a car, you're taking your life in your hands. Mm-hmm. But and that's not really the case with flying. And obviously, like when there are terrible plane crashes or whatever, um, those make the news because they're so rare. And that takes the hold in the imagination, just like some horrible high profile murder takes yeah. hold of the imagination. Right. And yeah, it's, it's the not, sensational. Yeah, and it. it's something you never Number one, flying is scary. Yeah, no, flying is scary. No, no, you know what? Fair play. Flying is scary, but it's not rationally scary. No, it's yeah, much right. more rational to be scared of driving. But then again, you're scared of driving as well. So, <laughs> yeah, I am. Well, look, I, I do have to. I have to drive like somewhat often based on like where I live. But I do like get terrified whenever I do it, and it makes it like look on my way here, for example. Um, I like a four by four, like oh, or SUV, like nearly smashed into me. It's a scary thing. It is. Well, flying thing. is scary. Fl- you know why flying is scary? Because you know when you're on the plane and it like does the little loop around to uh-huh. get to the uh, get to the runway, mm-hmm. and like because that loop around is so slow, it's like the roller coaster, right? Roller coasters are also <laughs> yeah. safe. When you go, but when you're going up the roller coaster, um, the last thing you want is someone next to you being like, oh yeah, this is actually really safe statistically. <laughs> you won't have any problems. No, roller no, coasters okay. scary. Okay, going high. That's right. right that, okay, that's okay. Well, thank you for that little window into your into your psyche. But I think it's yeah, I think it's a kind of similar thing because obviously, in terms of kind of self protection, the best thing that you can do is not to date and not have a family mm-hmm. and not go to church or not go to temple or not or, or not go not go to work. And it's just and that's not a re- yeah, never leave your and house. That's not a, yeah. and that's not a reasonable ask. And so. So it gets kind of dislocated into okay, well, how can I prevent? How can I prevent something awful happening to me? This is how, and also because people are very imaginative creatures, so they start hearing about all this stuff. They hear about the plane crash. They hear about the horrible murder, and something which has never occurred to them could happen to them. They suddenly think maybe this could happen to me, 
And I think it's I think it's a great shame because not only do I think that it's a bad thing if young women limit the way that they engage with the world and I think it's a bad bad and sad thing if young women are afraid of the world and are avoiding opportunities and that kind of thing because they're so because they're so afraid of everything. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to to get people to kind of trust their instincts. But we also live in a very particular kind of culture and society. And sometimes your instincts are bad. Right. Like, yeah. Pe- like people have all kinds of unconscious racist instinct- instincts. They have mm-hmm. all kinds of unconscious, like all kinds of unconscious things going on, which is like embedded in you. And then also most people, I think I'd like to think this, most people in the main would like, for example, not to think that they're being racist. So if you're trying to follow your instincts and say that you're say that you're a young woman out on her own and you don't and you are and you are freaked out by a man who is there at what point does one trust their instincts and at what point does one say actually no my instinct is is not is not good in this situation because then it turns into like a little bit of a muddle so not only do i think that that's like a bad thing and also, I think it's very bad that people have been persuaded that um, everyone is trying to kind of harm you. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's a very self-involved way of negotiating right, the right. world. Well, I'm, like, I'm not, you're, we aren't that important that people yeah, are going like, to like, 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 this person on the bench is going to human traffic me. Like, I don't think, this yeah. is, right. And I think this is something, just having this conversation, it really reminds me of, um, Quite a lot of the stuff that we saw, um, I'm, I'm sure you were aware of this case when a young woman was murdered by a member of the Metropolitan Police. Yeah. And it was a very, very high profile, absolutely like hor- like horrifying case. And a lot of the instincts around, uh, particularly around uh, what people were kind of posting on social media were young women talking about different ways in which they have to keep themselves safe and the different things that they do so like so women talking about you don't understand about like men will never understand about walking with their keys between their fingers men will never understand about texting when you get home and again if you're going to get attacked you're much more likely to be attacked if you're if you're a man um and I completely understood the kind of the impulse behind it. And I completely understood the impulse behind men saying, so don't like leave women alone if they're drunk. Don't walk too close behind someone. Don't freak women out. Don't follow them home, etc." And like, and it's all, it's all so, so understandable because everybody wants there to be a way of protecting themselves. But the absolute bald and horrible truth is that nothing could have saved this young woman because not only was he a member of a member of a of an organization which has been invested with institutional power and institutional authority the uh expansion of police powers around covid laws made it possible for him for him to kill her for him to kidnap her off the street and and kill her and there's and there's absolutely no point in discussing it unless you're going to talk about the violent institution of policing because right. that's because that's what killed her it wasn't it wasn't right. she, and it, it yeah. wasn't 
a choice she could have made. No, it wasn't a choice she could have made. And it's also going over the case and like going over her foot, like where could she have turned? Where yeah. could she like that? Yeah. It, it, that to me, I mean, that's just victim blaming. That's saying like it, she could have prevented this. Is, How can yeah. we prevent this from happening to us? It is, but it's also, it's also a kind of, it also develops this kind of interesting uh, sort of cross purposes discussion around it where people think, well, this is about men like making sure that their creepy mates aren't creepy. But most men know not to murder women. And most (laughs) men are not murdering women. This is like, it's the reason it makes the papers when it happens is because it is, again, if you're going to be murdered by a stranger, you're going to be in the papers over it because Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're a woman, you're going to be murdered. It's more, most likely to be by your, by your partner. So that's something nice to think about. Um, and that's something, yeah. And again, it's like, it's something which very much kind of appears in true crime, but doesn't seem to take a grip on the collective Mm -hmm. imagination of the consumers of true crime. So, because again, because it's impossible, what, what are you going to say? What, what, so I just never date? Like, Right. We're not willing to give up those kinds of relationships. No. We're not willing to give up, you know, our family or having a partner, but we are willing to give up having bonds with, you know, strangers or yeah. our neighbors or, you know, yeah. people that we could have a relationship with, but we choose not to yeah. in order to keep ourselves safe. But it, it you know, that's yeah. not logical. Yeah. Well, I wonder how much of this was also affecting, and, they, and you know I, know, I know that we sort of like have to kind of wrap up uh, pretty soon. Uh, but like one of the things that I got from your piece when I was reading it was also how like, you know, it, it you know, so like the obvious thing or one of, one of like the obvious solutions is like, yeah, like to protect yourself, you should like never go outside and never do anything and sort of stay within your courses, which like some people do, right? Like, you know, right. or like, you know, it's, it, you know, you, it, it's a choice that people make. It's not necessarily one that I think is like wholly practical, but, um, you know, it's a choice that people make. Um, then you've got like this instance of, uh, I mean, how how's best to kind of describe it? Um, I think like in, I, I've been thinking a bit about just like how, when we speak about like posters brain and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, one of the kind of key features is like, okay, well, it's when like one of the, one of the key like indicators is interacting in the real world, like as if you were still online and kind of like that, not necessarily becoming indistinguishable, but where like digital mediation sort of like plays a very key role in how you understand your place in the world and your relationships and so on. And it's kind of where you kind of get things where, you know, you you see those like sort of odd posts that are kind of along the lines of like, oh, your relationship isn't kind of real or authentic or meaningful if like your partner isn't, or like your friend isn't doing X, Y, Z for you, right? It's a very Mm -hmm. sort of like transactional way of thinking about like how relationships sort of play out. And I and I and I can't help but think that like the you know the the stuff that you point out in terms of how true crime and like how like overexposure to the tendencies of true crime, um, how that kind of affects how you think about safety and risk appetite in the world, that that doesn't play in there as well. Where again, like when you sort of see someone who's like suffering in public and like you don't you and you kind of get wary about helping them because what if like they have a weapon on them or something right, right. like the, that that kind of that kind of feeds into a little bit of that tendency right like you know um it, you become like dis- you, you you become like untrustworthy or you become uh suspicious about like people around you where there's no and you and you also like miscalculate who you should be suspicious of mm-hmm. um and like who you shouldn't be it kind of create like so so as a result you end up having this very disorientated 
um, paranoid view of the world. And like, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not advocating and especially for like, I'm, I, I'm not trying to minimize like the realities of risk and like the realities of like harm and who is more likely to get harmed in public. Um, but I, I, I think it's much more about how that can kind of be disorientated or warped. And as a result, people miscalculate like their risk and like who they are most at risk of like being harmed by in the real world. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, posting and and social media in general, it always sort of rewards the most extreme takes or like the most dramatic statements. Um, You know, that's what gets retweets that what's, that's what like, you know, causes, you know, something to go viral. It's, it's never something that's like subtle and, you know, true crime and danger and risk assessment. Those are things that need to be sort of looked at, you know, in a very nuanced way. And that is not the way that we look at things online. We don't Mm. look at things in a nuanced manner. We look at things sort of in a very black and white kind of way. Um, And, you know, I think a lot about, uh, I don't know if y'all had this in, in England, but like when we were growing up, they did a lot of like stranger danger. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which was one of the like worst things they could have done um, mm. because it was like, oh, if you see a stranger, tell an adult. And so it, what happened is it made kids be on the lookout, you know, for you know guys in trench coats and stuff yeah. at the park. I was I was and, such a fearless child before those stranger yeah. <laughs> dangers club danger like yeah. classes that we had to do. Like I would like I would I would talk to anyone. I would wander off with other families, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, when I was I suppose about kind of six or seven, I became convinced that someone was coming to get me in their car, and it came from right. somewhere. <laughs> right, and it's it's stranger danger, and it made us so scared that like some outside force was going to take us and it made kids look outwardly for danger which was a, like a big mistake because as we know now most danger comes from the parents or from someone in your family and so yeah. we weren't trained to look for that we weren't trained to even know that like if you were being abused by a member of the family like well no but it's not a stranger so how could that be you know dangerous and it just it like really gave kids the wrong tools mm. and parents the wrong yeah. tools to like talk about abuse and mm. talk about danger yeah i remember like when the uh james bulger case happened uh in the uk um that was like around about that was like the time so before then like my parents like ran a shop and like the way that they would sort of circumvent um paying for childcare or like because they, they couldn't afford childcare, was that i would just like they would just like give me to like certain customers who like live nearby right and like it's kind of like a bit and they, and they stopped doing that when the james bulger case happened because mm. and it was really weird it's really weird to think about now because i was just like oh like so these people who like come to your shop and like you you trusted before suddenly now they kind of like pose this danger because they're like not directly related to you mm-hmm. um and my parents were like never really able to sort of describe this except for like oh you sort of had to be there a parent at a time and if you were there and you were a parent and you kind of like witnessed and you like understood what happened to this like boy who like crucially was like this wasn't kind of an adult like who did this it were like two other kids that did this um but it created like such a sort of like panic in the country that i think felt like it had like quite a significant impact on like how you know yeah i i guess it would have an impact that would like make sense of the time although we sort of understand things we un- we understand like where the dangers are a little bit better like now right Right. Um, and, you know, as a parent, I'm sure you can't sort of 
put that fear in a box, but you know, it's like, think, you know, why, why is just hearing about this, you know, enough for you to rethink your entire worldview? Like, do you, do we really want to let sort of our measure of humanity be the worst people in the world? (laughs) You know, like, do we, do we really want to say like, well, because, you know, Ted Bundy preyed on, you know, women's helpfulness that we should never help anyone because, you know, what might like, like, is that how we want to gauge our fellow or even in the case, I've been given advice sometimes, but I've always found very weird, which is like, oh, don't kind of like, if you see someone in trouble, be careful about helping them. Because if you're like shown to be too keen, then they might get the wrong idea and they might think that you're actually like trying to do something like nefarious or like harmful. Um, like that's never happened to me when I've done that in practice, but like, right, right. It's, I mean, like, it's, such a, it's such a weird thing to sort of think about or like to say to someone, like, don't yeah, be that's too terrible like, advice. Like, yeah. don't be nice. Don't <laughs> help people. They like, they could take it the yeah. wrong way. It's like, okay, is this, is and, this something yeah. that we want to be teaching people? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the last couple of years have really shown us how apparently impossible an ethics of collective care has become one, like yes, one yeah. way or another. Yeah, I thought about yeah. I was going to say this. Is, I was going to say we have vi- to start winding up, so this is maybe not a great note to end it on. No, we we do, but but there is like one question which I think is related to that, which I also think would be a good way to wind up, which is um. So like towards the end of your piece, uh, you also talk about like how this kind of feeds into um like a certain kind of conservative politics, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes that like feeds on like a policy level in terms of like you know it can be used it's it's used by like city mayors and stuff to like justify. Um, you know, uh, increases in like uh, abusive policing or like mm-hmm. increased surveillance. Uh, it was certainly used in the UK to like expand like CCTV cameras uh, yeah. and like, you know, broader kind of measures of like counter extremism were also sort of justified using that lens. But I think while you were talking, one thing I was thinking about was also just like how this feeds into like these kind of social conservative uh, ideas around like, you know, and the fallacy of like personal responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that like, you know, uh, like ultimately you are responsible for yourself and like, you know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know anything to society. You don't know, you owe anything to strangers. And crucially, if you do think that you owe something to these people who like don't have these like blood relations to you or something along those lines, Mm -hmm. then like you're actually kind of part of the problem. And I wondered like what your thoughts were on that. And also if you felt that like, whether like true client crime sort of either plays a role in that type of thinking or has sort of contributed to like shaping that understanding that people have about like, you know, who they owe kind of help to and like mm-hmm. when they should intervene and when they shouldn't uh, in yeah. public. I mean, I think sort of the, the best cases of true, of true crime, like the best um, media products of it sort of show, you know, the failures of, of the police and of the criminal justice system yeah. and, you know, the, the way that, that, you know, we, in trying to like, you know, protect ourselves or protect victims have, have, you know, unintentionally or more like intentionally, <laughs> um, you know, put more people in prison, you know, increase p- policing, militarize our police, like all these things and all of the overreach of the government um, and sort of sort of focused more on how we can, you know, help people socially. And, you know, we know like one of the major factors for crime is like poverty and like we kind of we know some of the things we can do to decrease crime and we haven't really done a lot with them but i you know i think that the best examples of the genre you know shine a light on that um but i i do think that when you are constantly bombarded with stories about like bad things happening it does change your outlook 
on the world. And that's something that you sort of need to actively fight against. And if we can't do that, you know, collectively and care about one another as a society, then then we'll have to do it individually. And maybe in that case, the individualism can be used for good. It's like, you know, make a choice to not let this change the way you think about strangers or the way you think about someone who might need help. You know, um, mm. I was helped by strangers when I was attacked and and I will be eternally grateful for that. And, yeah. you know, so now what I try to do is say like, you know, help people mm. if you can. If you see someone, you know, try try to, you know, fight the instinct that says, you know, this this could be a trap because that is your anxiety talking that isn't sort of a natural response that is a sort of learned response because of the world that we live in. Mm. Um, as humans, like our response should be to help one another. Mm. Um, Absolutely. Because when you see someone on the ground bleeding, like you, the odds are that that is not a trick. And I would rather, I would rather get, you know, my wallet stolen or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And go yeah. And help someone. Yeah. Play, play then, those odds, I think. And walk by and be like, well, you never know. Mm. So, you know, if you can, if you, you know, have that choice, like I'm always going to choose to try and do what's going to help me sleep at night. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one thing, one thing you can say about this country is that uh, the response to crime does not seem to be to give more money to the police. So that's something because that's funding public services and we don't do that because that's communist. Um, yeah. That's the that only true, public yeah. service we fund. So, you know. Yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't fund even, yeah. any of them. There was a, there was a thing literally happened today when um, uh, uh, Pretty Patel, our home secretary, was confronted mm. by, um, by some police officers who were talking about how like police officers have to kind of use food banks and, you know, could you survive on this little money a month? Etc. And it's a bit like let them fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure that will go swimmingly. I'm sure everything's going to be fine. Everything's fine. Um, well, I think yeah. Actually, you know, I was going to say that like I think Emma ended on like quite a nice note, which was unexpected of this show. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate. I appreciate it. I appreciate um, that. Like you know, there is some light, and like we should believe in that. So like Emma, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, we really appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. This is um, a lot of fun. Uh, Emma's article is located in the show notes if you want to read it. But um, if uh, people want to, if listeners want to like keep up with what you're up to and the stuff you're writing, how can they do that? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm on there a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's um, you know Instagram occasionally, but yeah, mostly just Twitter. And um, I post my work there, and hopefully have some new stuff coming out soon. Cool. Uh, we'll also, I'll also put, po post the links to your books uh, in oh, the show notes you. as well, so if people want to buy them. Uh, they look very, they look very interesting. Um, from us, uh, you can follow us at 10k postpod on twitter.com. You can also, uh, follow our Patreon for bonus content. Uh, once, uh, we do two episodes a week, uh, one of them's bonus, one of them's, I'm, I'm really tired today. I'm sorry. Look, we have one bonus content. <laughs> we have bon one bonus episode a week on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash 10k post podcast. Uh, you can follow me at H Kizavani where I also do like inane ramblings, um, all the time. Uh, Phoebe, do you want to do your plugs? Because I feel like I need to stop. <laughs> okay. Um, you can request to follow my locked Twitter account. Uh, mind your own business as to why it's locked. How about that? Uh, <laughs> at PRHRoy. Uh, if you want to see, say, for example, today, I found a an Italian Top Trumps card, which was just a picture of a wild boar. Um, so, you know, follow that for for more of that kind of that kind of content. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Phoebe underscore Rosa underscore Holly. 
And if you would like to follow me and Milo Edwards' Seinfeld podcast, that's um, on Twitter at Masters of Pod. And that's where we post our episodes and more pictures of wild boar and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I was very fascinated by the, by the trading card that you found today. Um, I want to find out what the rest of them are, like or like what that brand of game is. Oh, somebody, um, who, somebody who follows me found the brand of game. Oh, nice. um, and okay. sent me some more screenshots from it so that's oh yeah so that's something for everyone to enjoy in that thread that's great i'm gonna i'm gonna order some cards i feel like i i like them a lot um and i like the boar a lot um yeah uh, this show is produced by devon you can follow them at devon underscore on earth uh you can also listen to kill james bond which is their podcast it's very good um i think that's it from us so we'll catch you on the we'll catch you like next time whether that's on the bonus episode or whether it's on the next free one uh thank you so much uh catch you soon Bye. Bye-bye.